0: Hi, I'm Elissa Nicole Trust, an actor and writer living in New York City.
1: Hey, I'm Lauren Shaffel, an actress and producer also living in New York City. And, and we, we are Positive,
0: Positive Creativity Podcast. Creativity. Positive Creativity is a podcast where we speak with writers, directors, and other artists about what they're working on, what's inspiring them, and how they stay positive in this industry. We are looking to shed light on all of the wonderful projects happening in New York and beyond.
1: Our goal is to give creative artists a platform to talk about their work and to give theater and film lovers the opportunity to learn about more creatives and projects. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you with support from Ahava Theater Company. Lindsay Rosen is a professional writer, director, producer, and novelist. She's currently a writer on the NBC TV series Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Lindsay lives in Los Angeles with her husband, Josh, their nine month old daughter, Helen, and their dog, Dodger. She's incredibly happy that the Dodgers won the World Series, and even happier that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won the presidential election. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you so
2: much. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So glad to be here.
1: We're so excited to have you here. Uh, and on opposite coasts, this is really exciting.
2: Hello from
1: Los Angeles, California. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lindsay, we always start by asking this question, which I'll warn you, kind of a, a big question. So what, what's currently inspiring you? Oh my gosh, what a big
2: question. Yep. Especially now. <laughs> in the midst of the pandemic. Um, what is inspiring me? Wow. Well, at this moment of my life, I think a lot of my inspiration is coming from my about to be six month old daughter, whose name is Helen. Um, and that's been just the most incredible like journey to be a mom in this moment and such a crazy time to be a mom in this moment. So I feel like I'm very much living in this contrast of the best of times and the worst of times. Um, oh. So I'm finding sort of inspiration in that, um, which is which is big, and I don't mean to be vague about it, but I think that there's something about this time in all of our lives where we're having this very collective experience of this pandemic um, that is so specific and so difficult and um yet everyone's kind of in it on their own um and so for me and my husband and my family you know it's it's going to be we won't be, ever be able to separate this time from Helen's birth and the beginning of her life and so I'm finding a lot of maybe maybe not inspiration but as a cousin to inspiration I'm finding a lot of grounding um and and sort of sort of stationary energy in in being a mom for the first time um and living in that. So that's been the biggest silver lining of this chapter of my life. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Yes. Congratulations.
1: It kind of blows my mind to think about like when Helen is, I don't know, a teenager and you're like, you were born in the pandemic of 2020.
2: Yeah, that's wild. I mean, so many things that are so specific, like you know, her first doctor's appointment and we're wearing masks in the elevator on the way to the, I don't know, just everything is so through this lens. But I think that for everyone, no matter what age they are, in what stage of life they are, this is going to have profound ripple effects. So it's interesting that for her, at least she doesn't know what's going on. That's probably the greatest. She's really smiley and happy to be here, which is great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And I'm also, I guess just in thinking, you know, broader than the personal, I'm also really inspired by the way that people are finding inspiration in the quarantine and in the Black Lives Matter movement and in so many other movements that are sort of at the forefront of our mind right now. And I think that like there's moments in the past few months that I feel felt a lot of despair and a lot of just I just want to like lay on the couch and watch Netflix not there's anything wrong with that but I I am continue to be inspired by the creativity um by the art people are putting in the world um you know in the past two weeks I've listened to you know folklore more times than I can count and you know I just watched Black is King on um, Disney Plus and um You know, just just the the wide spectrum of art that's being produced right now in this moment in time is very inspiring. And, you know, all the way down to the TikTok videos, which I, you know, save TikTok or whatever.
0: (laughs) Cool. Yes. No, I agree with you. I've been extremely inspired by all of the artists around me and everything that they're able to create in this moment. It's um, pretty amazing and yes um how people are showing up for various movements it's definitely um an important time as much as it is difficult
2: very much so and i think i think you know it's hard i just i feel like it's not it's sort of you can you can argue on the one hand that you know everything's happening at the same time you know there there's that feeling like so much is happening but i also feel like in so many ways um, the quarantine and the pandemic has really stripped everything down to this ability to actually focus on things. And I think that's why certain things are getting attention uh, and not not even just the Black Lives Matter movement, but I think certain certain things that are, you know, we've, we've seen them before. This isn't the first time some things have reared um, up in the collective consciousness, certainly not in pertaining to the Black Lives Matter movement, but just people have a little more like time and space. And I think that there's a little less distraction right now. And and that is broad reaching. So I, I feel like if we're looking for the glass being half full, which I'm not, not always or normally, but in this moment, I think that that would be the upside of this chapter is the ability to go in deep on something.
1: Yes, I love that. Yeah, for sure. Kind of the silver linings of a very, very challenging time. Totally.
0: So you write for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. I do. Um, congratulations on the announcement of a season two. you.
2: We are, we are, you know, we're hard at work on season two right now as I speak.
0: Yeah. So um, can you tell us how you got involved with the show? What was it like working on season one and what's going on with season two given COVID?
2: Oh my goodness. Yes. So I, I love the show. I'm so fortunate to be a part of the writing staff on the show. Um, I've known Austin Winsberg, who created the show since I was in high school. Uh, I went to Harvard-Westlake in Los Angeles, and I... (laughs) Shout out to to (laughs) Harvard-Westlake! And I, there was something at Harvard-Westlake called a one-act festival, a one-act play festival that, as students, you could write for. And I um I wrote I started writing plays in high school sort of for the one act festival and then after the one act festival there were a lot of competitions that you could apply for in young playwrights festivals and there was one at the blank theater company in particular that I won um twice my sophomore year I uh, wrote a play called stormy waters which was a girl's name and also a metaphor because so it was like very heavy-handed um but it was lovely and it was you when you win the Blank Theater Festival, you're assigned a mentor. And so Austin was my mentor and director for the show. So I've known Austin for basically half my life, um, which is crazy. And, uh, you know, we, we clicked then through our love of theater and have, you know, stayed in touch over the years. And... Um, you know Austin is a wonderful TV writer and a, has an incredible theater background and wrote um, a musical that went to like was on Broadway and and all of that impressive stuff. And I remember hearing about Zoe's pretty early on in the process. I, I knew what, and Austin I wrote wrote projects sort of together over the years, or he supervised me on stuff when I was a younger writer. And then so I'd heard about Zoe's and I remember I read the script in January of you know before I guess it would be twenty night before it even got picked up I read I read the script and I was completely blown away and I loved it so much and obviously so did NBC so I was just really fortunate to be able to be a part of the writing staff um that first season and I wrote the sixth episode which is um Zoe's Extraordinary Night Out which is um with Simon and Jessica's engagement party and there's a lot of stuff in that episode I'm super proud of including that we got to shoot Say My Name as a song, which as a 90s kid to have like the Destiny's Child anthem was a dream come true to have Lauren Graham sing TikTok by Kesha was just like a fever dream that I don't even know how that happened. And then there's a big set piece at the end of the episode that um, is set to 500 miles that Skylar Astin playing Max sings to Zoe. Um, and I, you know, so those were all things that I was so excited to get to sort of, infuse into that episode in the midst of a of a season of extraordinary musical moments like those were some of my favorites and it was really fun to be on the writing staff it was you know a traditional writer's room last last season we were all in person in an actual room spent a lot of time around that table and then I was fortunate that I got to go up to Vancouver which is where the show is shot for both that episode 106 and also I came back a few weeks later for episode 109 um, which featured um the incredible um, uh, deaf performers um, doing uh, the one of the most memorable, you know, musical moments of the year, in my opinion, um, which was Fight Song. And then also that episode ends with Happier, um, which is a sort of Simon Jessica dance number, which I think is probably the single, the 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 musical number I'm the most proud of for lots of reasons. Um, it was sort of a breakup song, um, dance and song. And I feel like I watch a lot of TV as I'm sure you guys do too. And I've seen so many breakup scenes, but to get to see a breakup scene, you know, through Mandy Moore's incredible choreography and song and dance was just beyond extraordinary. And no pun intended. That was, that was, Um, but, and that was just one of my favorite days on set was that the day we shot happier. So I got to spend, I spent overall six weeks in Vancouver last year, which is my, I love being on set. It's my favorite place to be. And then, um, you know, the show came out last Last or this year, but earlier in the year, and we were so sort of blown away by the fan reaction, and um, was then so fortunate to get a second season. But sort of with the order coming in the midst of the pandemic, and what does that even mean? So this season, we're in a Zoom writers' room. So we've never met all in person. We spend many many hours a day on Zoom, which is which is tough. It's it's draining. Like the you know, anytime you're breaking a episode of TV, there's always a point where I feel like everyone just wants to bang their heads against the wall. And I think there's things about Zoom that exacerbate that quite a bit. There's also things about Zoom that I think make everybody focus just slightly more because it sort of feels very official and it's harder to kind of just, you know, devolve into watching YouTube videos. I mean, that's much easier when you're in person, you know, on Zoom, someone has a screen share. It's like a whole thing. So I think it it keeps us a a little more focused, which I'd say is the silver lining and things are moving um, really, really fast. In terms of breaking the stories, and I'm so excited about the stories this season and and, and the writing staff this season. But uh, I am a little bummed that uh, the, the the show's going to start filming. We'll knock on wood, um, you know, in Vancouver in the next two months or so. But um, you know, it's we won't. I won't be able to go to the set this season, which was a bummer. But um, there's a quarantine into Canada, so anyone that goes has to spend two weeks in quarantine before they can even get to set, which I fully support for everyone's health and safety, but it's going to make, you know, visits almost impossible. So that's where we find ourselves now is we're in the middle of working on the sixth episode of the second season already, which is amazing. And, and that's where we are.
0: Wow, wow. That is so cool. What an amazing journey.
2: Thank you. Did you guys watch the show?
0: <laughs> um. Yes. Watched it. Loved it. I was very inspired when I read about how it was adapted from Austin Winsberg's Real Life Tragedy. And I actually wrote him a note. And my friend who went to camp with him passed it along to him. And then through her, he wrote back to me, (laughs) which was really cool. Um, Yeah. And this was even before we connected with you. But Yeah, so for those of our listeners who don't know, in the show, the character Mitch has a rare neurological disease called PSP. Um, I hope I say this right, progressive supranuclear palsy, and that enables, that renders him unable to move or communicate with his daughter Zoe, his wife Maggie, his son David, or pretty much anyone else around him, and Austin's real-life father also suffered from PSP, And just like David's character in the show, he struggled with losing a father at the same time he was becoming one himself. Mm -hmm. And like I said, when I read about that, I was extremely touched and then became inspired myself to begin to include elements of my personal life in my own writing. So I really would love to hear about how really how that informs your process, but also just generally, it would be cool to hear your thoughts on this idea of using one's personal experiences in their work as a writer.
2: Yeah, so thanks for asking all that. I think, you know, yes, this is the story of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist is based on Austin's, you know, unfortunate, you know, real life experience with his father. Um, and I think you know, for Austin, it's such a personal show and story. And I think we realized sort of really quickly and, and Austin definitely led the charge on this, but I think this was the collective consciousness in the room is that, you know, the more specific you can sort of be in a story like this, sometimes the more universal it becomes. So even though it's, you know, Zoe and David as brother and sister are sort of state, like both have big pieces of Austin in them. Um, I think that it, it re- a lot of people find themselves relating to, This journey and whether it's people who have dealt with, um, you know, uh, the specific disease or similar diseases or, or even things that are not so similar, but there's a way that it, that the specificity and the way Austin was so willing to put his personal self out there, um, and really crack that open. I think what is part of what, um, people responded to in watching the show and feeling, um, you know the heart and the care that was sort of put into those characters, and then you know here we are looking towards season two. Um, you know, uh, um, spoiler alert. So if you did not watch <laughs> Zoe, skip ahead 15 seconds. But Mitch passed <laughs> away in the season finale, and so we're working in a world. Um, you know what happens? What happens next? And I think that's also very relatable and specific. Um, and a lot of people have dealt with grief and and what that looks like. And so that's what we're grappling with um, in season two. But I think um, I think and I think that there's elements of I think that when you write about things that are real and things that are personal, I think that that always translates. And you can always sort of tell when somebody really embodies something that they're writing or performing. Uh, um, one way I like to say it is you have to write what you know, and I think that that's true. But I think that that's true mostly from an emotional place. Like, I, I think that there is room for imagination and creativity and world building that sets you outside of yourself. But I think that there is a fine line between, you know, uh, making sure to pick projects and pick ideas that your skills are well suited for and making sure that the main characters that you pick to write about are, are characters that you can really, like, get inside their head and sort of you know, understand where they're coming from, from an emotional place. So I, I both believe it's important to write what you know. But at the same time, I do think that, you know, some people say, well, I don't want to only write like my autobiography, but I don't think that's what I mean when I say write what you know. You have to write what you can emotionally understand, but that can show up in in many ways. I think, for example, I'm also at this moment working on a a pilot for the sci-fi channel that I've been working on for for quite a while. And it's based on a YA um, online book series called Death Is My BFF. And it's a super fun title. It's kind of in like a Buffy Twilight universe about this teenage girl who, um, right as she's turning 18, finds out that she's the product of a prophecy, and she's responsible for restoring the balance of good and evil in the universe, and it's a lot of pressure, you know, for an 18-year-old, and she sort of enters into, um, without, without giving anything away, she sort of soon enters into sort of this romantic love triangle between a very sexy grim reaper and her guardian angel. And so this is a world in this John. And I don't normally write genre stuff, but the thing about this whole story that I latched onto was the main character whose name is faith experiences anxiety. And, you know, I love, I as someone that has experienced and continues to experience anxiety and depression throughout my life, it was really the piece. Like I love the whole world. Like I love, you know, faith. I love the the world that was built in these novels. But when I realized like, Oh, this main character experiences anxiety in a way that is, is potentially crippling and has to manage her anxiety on top of, you know, trying to save the universe. I was like, there's something so relatable to me in that, not that I've ever had to save the universe, but I understand what anxiety feels like. I understand what, you know, these emotions are. And so, For me, it was even, um, and that project was what's called an open writing assignment, where it was a, a property that Sony, who's the studio on the project, was looking for a writer on. And when I sort of read about it, that was the thing that I clicked into. So similar, but different to the way, you know, we're talking about Austin using his real life experience in Zoe which is so important this was a a moment where I felt like okay like I am the writer for this job because I understand this aspect and this is going to be my way in and another writer might have looked at it and glommed onto some other element of it but I find that as I choose projects or as I choose original ideas there has to be something a kernel of something about it that is really allows me to write what I know because that's why I'm the one writing it and that and I don't think I don't think everybody should write every project, but when you find the project that really connects to something inside of you, whether it's a true life story, whether it's a character trait, whether it's a world you know about, I think that's when you can be the most successful, or at least speaking, I've been the most successful when I've been able to do those things. Yeah, totally.
1: And congratulations on having that sci-fi project. That's huge.
2: Yeah. I spent most of my writing... um, Television life has been in development, so Zoe's is actually my first staff job. Um, so it's the first time I've been on a writing staff of a show, and um, for most of my TV writing life, I've been developing pilots um, that you've never heard of. But one day that will change. <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Um,
1: so actually, building off of that, that brought up a question. So I'm curious, how does it work as a writer? Is it similar to being Let's say an actor where you apply or you audition for a job. Is it similar a similar situation for writers to apply for a specific project like the sci-fi project?
2: Yes and no is the short answer. The the yes is there's something and I mentioned this the the phrase open writing assignment. So there are um, like this for example was based on a book so. Sony um, Studios um, was working with different producers, and they bought this book. And then they're they, now they own the rights to the book, and they're looking for a writer to help adapt it. So they that's what's called an open writing assignment because there's a specific piece of IP intellectual property that they need a writer for. Sometimes it's not IP; it's just you know a certain production company or a certain network that says you know we want to do a show about doctors, you know, (laughs) revolutionary, but they're, you know, that's what they're looking for. And there, you know, there's a specific open writing assignment that, you know, you, you can, you can pitch on, Um, or sometimes if there's a feature that somebody's written and, you know, a production company thinks it's 50% of the way there, but they're looking for a rewrite, that would be an open writing assignment to do that rewrite. So there are certainly jobs that you can pitch on or jobs where there, that already exist, that are looking for writers. And that's sort of half the work of, of available, I would say. And then the other half is, you know, self-generated where people write their own scripts, um, whether it's a spec script that you just write from start to finish or whether it's an idea that you craft as a pitch. So for television, you know, sometimes the ideal situation is you pitch a TV show to a studio or network and then they pay you to actually write it. And sometimes that's, that's the most ideal way to go because you can, you have the you know when you're doing the work that you're getting paid for it but sometimes i'm working on a spec script right now and it's just something that is a passion project of mine and super near and dear to my heart and so i'm excited to be writing it because i don't want to wait for someone like i don't want to wait for someone to say okay you can write it it's just something that i want to have control over and so that's a reason why you might write a spec script um because then you you get to write it without any notes from anybody else and then you have a full finished project that hopefully you can sell
0: cool Thank yeah. you for answering that. That's so informative for me as I'm working on my first pilot. And I'm, I very much identify as a playwright, even though I've written, like I wrote web series and stuff, but the world of TV film is very new to me and I've been learning a lot from various <laughs> mentors so I feel like I just got a crash course from you in <laughs> that answer <laughs> so thank you
2: <laughs> I, you're welcome but also I love that you say you identify as a playwright I mean like I said I I feel like I started as a playwright and like I was young you know at the time but I still I still work in theater and I I love theater so much and I think especially for the kind of television that's being written now, the kind of show that works on a streaming network, which is most of everything and will be everything, everything very soon. Um, you know, that theatrical voice, that ability to write dialogue and hear dialogue and storytelling and structure. And like, I think anyone that wants to write anything should study theater is how I feel about the situation. Because, you know, if it, if it doesn't work on stage, it's not going to work. Um, you know, you, you, you don't really have any can't cut away to anything, you know, it it has has to work. So I think that that's, um, I return to my theater background constantly when I think about writing and think about story structure and think about character and think about tone, you know, the difference in in TV. There's there's this, there, I think it's changing, but you know, there were, so it's like half hour comedy, hour drama. Now I think we have so many shows that break that mold because the truth is, you know, like we know from theater, those things are very close. And the, be- the best pieces are when you can be laughing and crying even in the same episode, which is why I love writing for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist so much is, you know, there's laughing and crying and music. So really, it's a perfect show. Austin did a great job.
1: <laughs> it
0: really is. I mean, it's, it's crazy how it's so moving and entertaining and uplifting all in one.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Agree. Absolutely agree.
0: So- In addition to everything else that you do, you're a published author, which is so cool. Can you tell us about your book, Cherry?
2: Yes. I wrote a book called Cherry, which is about four female best friends who make a pact to lose their virginity before their high school graduation. Um, So kind of like a female take on American pie, but with more feelings and frozen yogurt, as I like to say. And um, It's set in Los Angeles. And I know it's never explicitly says that the girls go to Harvard Westlake, but they go to, you know, some fancy school in LA. So probably Harvard Westlake. And they do meet every, every moment they can, not like uh, weekly or anything, but just at the big chill frozen yogurt shop, which is my personal favorite frozen oh. yogurt place. It's an LA staple so um you know picking up our conversation about infusing your real life into your work cherry was a lot of me and uh, there's four female main characters and they're all a little pieces of of me and that was kind of fun when my friends and people who knew me read the book to kind of like the bits and pieces that they could tell oh this is you or this is you or or the boys that it's maybe based on being like this is me right it's like yeah that's you um so that was sort of <laughs> and a little embarrassing but you know it's really a story even though kind of the angle in is is kind of a framing device having to do with sexuality it's really a story about female friendship which i think is a lot of what i write is about female friendship and again and this is not necessarily normal in the publishing world but it was kind of a unique instance where um, my edit, the editor, I met with an editor who was looking for a book about female sexuality, and I kind of pitched them this take. And so it was sort of, a and I ended up writing a book proposal, and everything um, moved very quickly off of that, because it was something that the publisher, Simon Pulse, the publisher was looking for. So it was a really incredible experience, um, just because getting to write about female sexuality, and having getting to write about it in a sex positive way, which I didn't, you know, I didn't know, I wasn't, so familiar with the term sex positive, even when I was working on the book, but just like presenting like a reality of um, girls in high school and grappling with sex and, and what that means and then how it affects their friendship. And I think the sort of thesis statement of the whole thing was that what was really important was that they did it together, right? Like, you know, the the boys or the partners that, that the characters share, because they're not all boys, but they, um you know, they were able to explore their sexuality, their, their identity but it was really about them being friends and kind of doing it together and that's something I continue to be proud of um you know as I get further away from the publishing date of the book and um it was published in 2016 so almost four years ago in August so yeah almost exactly four years ago but which was a weird time if you think about it because it was right before the 2016 election Mm and you know I think that that definitely when I kind of color you know I think there's so many things that can be said about, about that. But I think at a time when I think a lot of people thought obviously mistakenly that it was going to be sort of a female president in this female empowering moment to then be the country taken in such a different direction. You know, it was, it was interesting to have written kind of a relatively you know little book about, you know, female hopes and dreams, like at that moment in time when things felt very dark and kind of dashed. So I do think it was, you know, it was, I'm so glad the book was published and it came out when it did, but just, you know, just a few months later, it felt like kind of um, the momentum of it it was hard to maintain or continue to be excited about as everyone's attention shifted. But the book was published um, in the UK and in Australia, and it was translated and published in Italy and France and Spain, which was super cool. And then like two years ago, I think I actually was in Italy and I found it in a bookstore in Italy, and that was one of the coolest things um you know professionally speaking so yeah it was uh, it's called cherry uh you know check it out if you're looking for a fun female read it's a good
0: time (laughs) we'll link it in the show notes for sure
2: yeah
1: i literally just looked it up on amazon i'm like oh okay that might be down is it on kindle as well i think it is that will be going onto my kindle i'm so excited (laughs) You're going to like all the LA shout outs also. Oh my God. I mean, just thinking about the big chill gives me such yeah. nostalgia right now. I'm just, uh, I'm like literally melting just thinking about that. Um, but also all things Harvard Westlake or Harvard Westlake based makes me yeah. really excited. <laughs> so cool. So cool. Yeah. So shifting gears a little bit, you also recently started a book club called the Overdue Book Club. Yes. and it's a book group that reads and discusses anti-racist literature i'd love to hear what really inspired you to start that book club and and how has that been going on have there been conversations coming out of that book club um that have really maybe inspired you or inspiring things that you're that you're even writing
2: about and working on yes very much so uh, you know I mean i think feel- as so many people did, I think that the the moment, um, uh, you know, George Floyd's murder was a a watershed moment, and like I said, a history of watershed moments. You know, I don't, I don't. It, it would be wrong to, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement started in 2013 as a response to the. Um, To Trayvon Martin's murder, you know, not being convicted. And there are so many points in history that we can look back at, whether it's Rodney King, whether it's Emmett Till, whether it's, you know, 400 years ago with the arrival of slaves in America. I mean, there's just so many injustices. So I don't mean to sound overly, I don't mean to oversimplify the situation and say, you know, I had this light bulb moment, but to be fair, um, I do think it's a turning point moment and I hope that the momentum continues from it. And so sitting at home, like we were talking about and pandemic and just feeling like I don't know enough to contribute to the conversations that I want to be contributing to or supporting or amplifying or, you know, grappling with the terminology. And I just felt like, you know what, I, I need to do better. So I just picked four books for to start with, and kind of posted them on social media, and you know, mostly to my circle of friends or kind of people who are one to two um, degrees removed from me. Um, just saying, anybody want to sort of circle up and and read, read, and 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 do some work, and like well, you know, it's, it's I almost laugh at myself because we started with White Fragility, and you know, it's like the parody of this is the book you're gonna read. But I will say. So any white people listening, if you have not white fragility, you know, what's, what are you waiting for? Um, And then from there, what are you waiting for in terms of many other books that need to be read? And, um, you know, especially uh, by black authors or authors of color. Um, And so it just kind of started from there. And I, there's about 50 people on my, on the overdue um, book list and every, every, we meet every two to three weeks and there's roughly between, you know, anywhere between, you know 15 and 25 people that kind of show up in any given week and it's it's a nice number to be able to have you know a discussion but people just kind of show up and and are accountable and and have we've been having tough conversations and we've we're on our um we just read citizen by Claudia Rankin which is just an incredible lyrical you know prose poem and a collection of sort of microaggressions uh um and other observations about being black in America that i highly recommend. We've yet to read a book that I wouldn't recommend. Um I, you know, I think I think there's something to be said, you know, for 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 moving through these works and and then um you know, we did a poll of everyone, you know, what people would like to read and in addition to anti-racist literature, we're also like we're just reading, you know, works by Maya Angelou and and, and other, you know, we're going to read novels, like, you know, we want to read plays, like you know, we want to just sort of take some space and time to center black writers and and you know some of it is learning and some of it's just appreciating and and then figuring out how we can you know turn that work into um you know active um anti-racist you know work that translates into into the real world and i've you know been grappling a little bit with the overdue book club of of because I you know there there is a little bit of embarrassment or shame and like I think that's okay you know because it is embarrassing to be like so late to this party that was going on way longer and you know like when you think about the curriculums and 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 all the fancy education that I received and 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 yet the gaps in my understanding of you know our society and white supremacist systems and things that I just, I feel like are overdue. Like it's, it's, there's no excuse for them. So kind of this fine line of, you know, wanting to do the work, um, and really do it and inspire other people to be doing it and inspiring tough conversations without, you know, virtue signaling or, you know, just look at me, I'm doing this thing, you know, trying to really be meaningful about it. But I, but I, I, you know, some, I just try to check myself and make sure that it's, it's, um, that I'm not, I'm not making it about me. And like, I think that I have throughout my life, even going back to being a younger person, like I am able to get people to show up for things, be it, um, you know, community service events, plays I've done, you know, I, I I, feel like we all have our different sort of specific interpersonal talents. And one thing that I can do is I can get people to show up and pay attention. And so um, really talking to my white friends, you know, to be like, show up and pay attention. And so I think, you know, with everything um going on, it's important to show up at the table and also, you know, that I think it's only one piece of the puzzle, so in addition to education, which is so important, you know, it's also making donations where you can, you know, you know, amplifying and and, and centering the work of black activists and you know, different different things that I'm realizing. Um, you know it's one thing for my own you know personal betterment and like it's nice to feel <laughs> like I know what I'm talking about but then using that knowledge to actually enact you know real change or create space for the people who know how to enact real change to enact that change that's I think the the continuous work that you know we're just going to be doing for a very long time but I feel like if I didn't have the Overdue Book Club I would have already kind of given up and maybe gone back to a little bit of normalcy but knowing you know we put we have a book we have book club dates on the calendar through October and it's just like you know when we'll add more and you know continue but it's like putting those due dates on the books really I think it helps hold everyone accountable so Mm -hmm. it's something that's been very enriching and kind of just something active to be doing That's
0: great. Um, And yeah, it's so important. And I think that that accountability is absolutely imperative. And based on a lot of what you're saying, I really think that you would enjoy this book, whether you read it on your own or for the book club, um, The Person You Mean to Be by Dolly Chug. Um, After this, I'll email you her TED Talk so you could at least just get a 10 minute preview. But um, it's I'm not even going to try to explain this book because I will just butcher it so badly. But essentially, um, it's more important to try to to try to be better and have this growth mindset than to decide you're a good person and try to prove that all the time. And I think Mm -hmm. her book is really evidence based and um, actionable and just really, really important. So I think you'd really like it.
2: That sounds awesome. Thank you. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no problem. Um, And, yeah, I mean, it's something that Lauren and I have had conversations about a lot, too, about, like, the overdue aspect of it. And some of what I've been thinking about is how one day when I do have children, how I'm going to bring them up and what I'm going to teach them. And I don't even have kids really on the horizon. (laughs) So I wonder, is that something that you've thought about as a new mom?
2: Oh, for sure, um, very much so. I think that there's, yeah, because there's a, a feeling of wanting to be able to say to my daughter, you know, she's like, what were you doing at this time? You know, to at least be able to say, you know, here are some things I was doing, here are organizations I was sporting. But I, but I think even more than that, I feel like in educating her and sort of like the generation, her generation, and and maybe even the generation that's a little older than her um already here you know just just the ways that history is taught in america and and what is centered and and what is you know the standard and and what is the other and in these things you know we certainly think about a lot um and I talk about with my husband all the time um you know and and will continue to be more pressing but I think I think the ways in which our parents, my parents talk to us about race, you know, that was, I understand why they did, but I feel like we need to do better um, for our kids. And, and and it's not just race, it's a lot, you know, it's it's gender, it's sexuality, you know, I think that like you have a little girl and, you know, so well-meaning, you know, but people are like, oh, it's like, they, you know, they get the pink they get them pink stuff and, and dolls and and then you know you hang out with your friend's son and it's like oh it's it's her future boyfriend and I'm always like well if she likes boys you know like I don't know it's just like you know, it's like or whatever you know it's just there's just so many we're so conditioned for certain things right. um, and it's just interesting to sort of see or even check that in yourself like when I, when I want to compliment my daughter and, you know, you, you just go to like, oh, you're so beautiful. It's like, you're so strong. Like, I don't know. It's just like, you want to like put your values where your mouth is kind of. And I think, um, I think parenthood does that to you. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for joining us tonight. It was such a pleasure getting to know you and chatting about all of the incredible, incredible work that you're doing. Um, I'm really excited for Zoe's season two. And um, I hope that... I pretty much hope that all of our listeners, if they started listening and hadn't seen it, just paused, watched the entire first season, and then came back to listen to the rest of this. But it was such a pleasure getting to know you. Um, So thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So nice getting to talk to you.
1: So great getting to talk to you, too. Thank you for inspiring us with all of your amazing work and projects that you're doing. And so excited to see what comes next. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We always love hearing from you. You can email us at positivecreativitypodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Instagram at positivecreativitypodcast. And for more info on our guest today, please view the show notes. Join us next time on Positive Creativity Podcast.